0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: Blockchain is colonialism. It is a hustle the gig economy imposed upon those in the hinterlands who run the engine of the market, forcing farmers to have higher overhead costs through a system where they do not own any of its constituent parts, where they are not in control. Blockchain is... A system of control But instead of that control being in the hands of, say, the state With oversight by the people It's in private hands Blockchain is just a kind of bookkeeping But it is a bookkeeping that is not legible to most of us Only a few Blockchain is premised on the idea that we are all selfish And given the opportunity, we would destroy everything for everybody else As we are all driven by self-interest And we'll cheat We'll be bad actors given the opportunity Blockchain is the self-fulfillment of politics that lands somewhere between libertarianism and anarchy. Blockchain is what is currently providing the world's burgeoning middle class with everything, from everywhere, at any time. You want strawberries when they're out of season, shipped to you from around the world, or fresh salmon from the Arctic? Blockchain can get it for you. Sure, it's going to require lots of resources to get those strawberries or salmon, and it's going to take a lot of electricity for all that computing necessary for blockchain, but who cares? Climate change, the impact on food producers, the concerns about all the vagaries of globalization, especially in a time of pandemic, all that be damned. I want my out-of-season strawberries and Arctic salmon. It all comes back to the metronormativity of the helpless elites and urban centers and what they demand of the useful idiots in rural communities Whose lives teeter precariously as the fickle market reacts to urban middle class demand Yep, there's a lot to unpack there about blockchain And we'll do our best when we speak in a few With artist, writer, coder, Xiaowei Wang Author of Blockchain Chicken Farm and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside Xiaowei is the creative director at Logic Magazine, which you can find at logicmag.io. Shaoway's work encompasses community-based and public art projects, data visualization, technology, ecology, and education. Their projects have been finalists for the Index Award, which celebrates people from far and wide who use design to change the world. Shaoway is currently working on a Ph.D. at UC Berkeley, where they are part of the National Science Foundation's research trainer Traineeship program In environment and society Data science for the 21st century Find out more about Shawway At XRWANG io. Follow Shawway on Twitter At XRW I am your bitter, blind, broke Gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream Host Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show Alex Jerry Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? This
0: week's question from Hell, courtesy of uh, courtesy of new producer Daphne, is what will fall along with the autumn leaves? What will fall along with the autumn leaves?
1: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember... Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You are our lifeline. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to either of us, Chuck at this is hell.com or Alex at this is hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show, Thursday's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dortch in The Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff looks at the spectrum from white to pale to transparent to invisible. It's actually the second part of that moment of truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell. Again, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? What else will fall with the autumn leaves? Email us your answers. DM us your answers via Twitter. Message them to us via Twitter. During this week's moment, here's the correct tease. Jeff shows up with the conclusion of his spiel on class consciousness. The future ain't what it used to be. This is how We got an update immediately after yesterday's show on the hashtag... NU community No to Cops campaign, which is happening in Evanston. And you can find out more about by following Cops Out of NU on Twitter. Andrew writes us again, this time updating us with Monday night. There were cops in Evanston from Evanston, Northwestern University Police Department, Berwin. Melrose Park Police Department, Northfield's Police Department, River Grove Police, Highland Park Police, the Northern Illinois Police Alarm System, at least two canine units and several unmarked cop cars all on hand to defend Northwestern University President Morton Shapiro's mansion. From a few hundred students who just wanted to eat pizza and dance in the street. Still looks like there's no mainstream news coverage of this aside from the school newspaper. And again, if you didn't hear this on yesterday's show, Andrew was talking about the defund the police and the end of Northwestern University Police Department campaign and actions that are taking place in Evanston, Illinois, at Northwestern University's campus, where our show is broadcast every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., but we pre-record it here in Chicago. Andrew, it does look like the local ABC affiliate WLS Channel 7, covered uh, the story on Wednesday Evening's News, but before that evening's protests, uh, which you write about, and the Chicago Tribune story... uh, they should not I mean, the Chicago Tribune ran a story last night with the headline, Disgusted NU pro- President Condemns Students Who Burned a School Banner and Vandalized Campus During Police Protests, Sparking Calls for the President's Resignation. That sign that he's talking about, uh, it's the We're All End This Together Banner, which hung over the entry to Northwestern University's campus, get it, end this together, and was pulled down and burned on Saturday night. Remember, President Dr. Shapiro said the students' complaints about police were valid, but that he would never abolish the NU Police Department. So, President Dr. has gone from your point is valid to, but your solution is untenable, to you disgust me for burning a sign. Somehow it went from your points are valid to you disgust me within 48 hours. I guess that's what happens when you protest outside of someone's house. You go from an interested party with a valid point to being the target of disgust. And another update. Yesterday, we read an email from Michael who wrote, Waiting for you guys to make a This Is held toque available with the same logo design as the trucker's cap for the same price. Please advise me when or if you are considering Saskatchewan-esque weather merchandise, as apparently Michael lives in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. Known for providing one-third of the world's potash and a fifth of the world's uranium and more than a third of the world's total exported durum wheat, and the world's top exporter of lentils and dry peas, a province whose motto, multis e gentibus viris," means from many people's strength. Saskatchewan also comes from the name of the nearby uh, river, which is a Cree word for swiftly moving river, and probably describes the area's history far better than from many people's strength, considering Canada's history of indigenous genocide. All that said, Michael, upon your request and brilliant idea, yes, this weekend our new gray on black This Is Hell winter cap goes live in our store at thisishell.com when you click on support at the same price as our trucker caps, so be looking for that. Again, that's at thisishell.com when you click on support. Remember, Patreon subscribers to this is hell at patreon.com slash this is hell, get a special secret word for a Patreon patron discount on all of our uh, Merchandise, but you can only get that Code word and the discount by being a Patreon subscriber to This Is Hell Which also gets you access to a weekly Patreon podcast every Friday with a new Monologue from me and a classic interview From our archives that is not currently Available online We want to thank Michael M. and Ian M. for becoming our newest subscribers to Patreon overnight. Michael and Ian and everyone who signs up can now get access to over 150 past Patreon shows by subscribing right now. Overnight, we also heard from more listeners who are interested in helping out here on This Is Hell as we are looking for new board operators to produce the show here at our studio in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, up on the second floor of 2251 West Devon above Carrie's Lounge. There is no need to have any audio experience of any kind for this position. In fact, this is a great way to learn how to run a mixing board and how to edit and post shows, how to do your own podcast, which you will be able to do in our professional studio. That's just one of the perks you get along with a very modest stipend. When you become a board op here on This is Hell, if you are interested, email me at chuck dot com. chuck at com, and that's exactly what Brian did, who writes Hey Chuck, I'm not working much right now and would definitely be down for helping you guys produce the show. I've got past experience and I'm a quick learner with this kind of thing. Can you let me know what Slots, days you're still needing someone For. I could definitely do a Regular schedule every other week Weeks when I don't have the kid But I also could uh, Be a backup sometimes on the odd weeks If needed. Hope to chat soon. Brian Having a backup emergency board op Sounds like a great idea and a great insurance Brian in case someone gets sick and living in the time of virus and heading into winter someone is bound to get sick most likely me but whatever if you are interested and you do know the days or day or days you can help us please include that information as Brian has that's very helpful yet another listener is interested in contributing to the show we mentioned that not only are we looking for people who can physically be here in Chicago in our studio join us in the studio to run the board which people used to call riding the board, but I always found that phrase, riding the board, really gross. But we're also looking for those of you who can help us remotely as we rebuild our online archives to include every show and every interview we have ever done since starting This Is Hell way back in 1996. Matt writes, Hello, Chuck and Alex. I've been listening to the show for many years now, and I hear that you've put out the call for assistance from all over. I have all my fingers, two eyes, and a brain, or what's left of it, so I'd love to put those to work at a computer to help you guys out. I'd love to assist in Chicago, but I'm currently located in the city of Hamilton, Ontario, and I can't pass up opportunities to see Henry Giraud speak. Otherwise, it would be a very compelling offer, as that's the town where Henry lives. Let me know how I can be put to use. And I look forward to more Hell in the future Henry has been on the show dozens of times And you can find a whole bunch of our interviews with Henry By going to our website, thishell.com And searching on his last name, G-I-R-O-U-X They're all very entertaining But Matt, I have so many questions And none of them have to do with working on the show First How miserable, or how beautiful, is Hamilton? Back in the day, friends from Toronto Snotty friends from t- Toronto Snobby friends from Toronto Would always talk about Hamilton like it was A gutted rust town like Detroit or The nearby town of Buffalo Which is very close to Hamilton Also Buffalo gets hit by huge snowstorms Every winter being on the east end of Lake Erie Hamilton is on just a bit north Of Buffalo on the west End of Lake Ontario Do you also get massive lake effect Snowfall? I've always wondered if it's just because It's on the east end of Lake Erie That Buffalo gets it And if the same thing happens on the west end of Lake Ontario, which is nearby, if manufacturing is gone in Hamilton, what has replaced it in Hamilton's economy? How often do you see Henry Giroux speak? More importantly, how often does he speak? Does he do stand-up every Friday at Chuckles? Finally, does Brian Eno still live in Hamilton? I heard that he had moved uh, his studios there because he knew nobody would bother him in Hamilton. The joke in Toronto from those snobby, snotty people in TO was that nobody in Hamilton would recognize Brian Eno anyway or know who he is, even if they were told. So, is it true? Do you ever see Brian Eno around? So yes, Matt, we will definitely get back in touch with you when we are looking for remote help on the show, sure. But I got so many questions about living in Hamilton, Ontario. Coming up on This Is Hell, Blockchain Chicken Farm. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? What else will fall with the autumn leaves? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, or today's show, I should say, is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. Blockchain is colonialism. Blockchain is libertarianism. Blockchain is anarchy. Blockchain is a lot of things, but one thing that is for certain is it's something that is changing the lives of those in rural communities who provide the engine for market capitalism as its growing middle class demands anything they want at any time that they want it from wherever it is. Here to help us get a better understanding of blockchain and the logic from which it emanates, Xiao Wei Wang is artist, writer, and coder, and author of Blockchain, Chicken Farm, and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. Welcome to This is Hell, Xiao Wei.
2: Thanks, Chuck. So glad to be on here.
1: Xiaowei is the creative director at Logic Magazine, and you can find that at logicmag.io. You can also find out more about Xiaowei at xrwang.github.io, and follow Xiaowei on Twitter at xrw. Uh, so you write. Well, where do I want to start here? Oh yeah, that's where I wanted to start. So uh, you travel from urban to rural China to see how blockchain is implemented and its effects on those who you describe as the engine of the economy. You write, I felt the pull of rural China about three years ago after visiting villages in Guizhou, seeing a side of China very different from the one portrayed in most media, in most forms of media. This pull was amplified by my need to challenge my own metro normativity, a portmanteau of metropolitan and normative, coined by the theorist and scholar Jack Halberstrom. And I I want to talk about this for a while because I found this absolutely fascinating, especially in the kind of divisiveness that we're having here in the United States between rural and urban areas. You write, metro normativity is pervasive. It's the normative standard idea that somehow rural culture and rural people are backward, conservative, and intolerant, and that the only way to live with freedom is to leave the countryside for highly connected urban oases. Metronormativity fuels the notion that the internet technology and media literacy will somehow save or educate rural people, either by allowing them to experience the broader world, offering new livelihoods, or reducing misinformation. So, Xiaowei, is metronormativity then a kind of... Urban colonialism, a belief that those in rural areas do not know better, need guidance, and their role is to fulfill the demands of the metropole? Because it does sound a lot like the supremacist and racist attitudes of empire and imperial uh, colonial projects.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of scholars have uh, written about this how. Even when we talk about cities, uh, like cities and urbanism are just an aid to settler colonialism, right? Because the city functions as this economic engine. Uh, meanwhile, you have the hinterlands, and um, the hinterlands are, well, at least in China, producing not only the material, you know, the mines, um, the farms. Uh, but also moving labor into the city and providing cheap labor for factories in the city. The migrants that end up in the cities in urban China can't really stay and only, you know, have to move back to the countryside once, you know, they're done with their jobs. Um, And so I think it is The book was actually sparked a lot by traveling back and forth between the U.S. and China and just seeing the urban rural divide and wanting another way to think through it, to talk about it. Um, That really emphasized both critically looking at the geographies of the two, but also being aware of the layers of imperialist logics that are present.
1: So, how necessary do you think metronormativity is for capitalism's success? Do we rationalize our hyperconsumerism by thinking of those in rural areas who are most affected as disposable?
2: Yeah. So, I I'll speak to I guess what's most present on my mind um, lately, especially in the U.S. I think there's always this kind of like. You know especially after the wake of the 2016 election there was this like you know strangers in their own land oh like it's just like poor people poor white people in the countryside of the us and that's that but actually um you know if you look more closely at rural sociology in the us the countryside is actually this much more complex vast landscape of like you know you have migrant workers um, from Latin America and, um, you know, just much more like racial, much more racial diversity and complications than I think metronormative mainstream um, scholarship likes to suggest. I think metronormativity just, yeah, absolutely makes the city the site of this like seductive, connected capitalism and that, you know, we all have to move to the city to somehow, fulfill uh you know fulfill our destiny as good consumers and good workers
1: so how do you think uh considering metro normativity how do you think they might be able to connect those who live in urban areas with those who live in rural communities because that's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last year. I got a gift subscription to a small town news weekly newspaper in northern Michigan and I've been thinking about that intense divide you look in their uh, the locals uh, the your opinion column and you see what people are writing to the newspaper from locals and there is very much a divide in their thinking and the logic and you, and you see it here here in urban areas as well so how do you think addressing that metro normativity how do you think that can bring together how do you think that can connect those who live in urban areas more with those living in rural communities
2: yeah so i'll speak to what i know which is you know i think there are so many ways to go about this but for me what really sparked interest is there um it was this book called Out in the Country by Mary Gray. And it was about uh, queer folks in the countryside, which is portrayed typically to be like, oh, it's so conservative. There's no queer folks here. Um, but actually, uh, Mary Gray writes about this and about how, you know, there's actually this much more nuanced, complex set of negotiations of living there. There's organizations that I follow, like Queer Appalachia, um, that's doing both community organizing work, but also trying to transform that narrative of visibility, queer visibility in the countryside. Um, And their community organizing is both not only focused on harm reduction of all different kinds, but also just, you know, revitalizing and creating this vibrant community. of queer folks in throughout Appalachia. And so I try to support these organizations that I feel connected to and in community with. Um, And I'm sure there's numerous other organizations that you know might have a place that's close to your listeners' hearts that um, they can try to connect like find as an entry point into the the rural areas of the US.
1: You write that the dynamics of rural China are not isolated to China itself, yet because of its geographic distance from the United States, it remains a kind of periphery. These rural peripheries, the edges of the world hidden from view, enable our existence in cities. Do they need to be hidden in order to be tolerated? And if so, what does it say about capitalism when the engine it depends upon, when the the engine of the market that urban areas depend upon needs to be hidden? If it wasn't hidden you think urban areas would tolerate it?
2: Well, I actually think it's this move, um, sorry not to be cynical, but I think that it's an intentional move on the part of capitalism to hide it, right? Um, you know, I often think about this when, uh, you know, thinking about tech organizing or, you um, you have. We often talk about like, oh, there's the white collar workers and how do you connect them to the gig workers, the contract workers. But then there's this other layer um, that more and more people are starting to talk about in great depth. I think Jenny Chan was re- recently listening to a podcast with her where um, she's helping Foxconn workers organize. Um, there's this other layer of the people in China who are manufacturing your ethernet cables, this microphone that I'm speaking to you through. Um, And it's like, that's also another potential layer of both organizing and also starting to um, really call into question these larger systems that entangle us all throughout the world. Right. Um, But of course, by, you know, language barriers, um, the, both barrier language barriers and also borders, um, it makes organizing more and more difficult. Um, I've heard some people in tech say, like, "Oh, well, it's not going to be the white collar workers of Palantir that sign the letter, and then you know they're going to cause change. It's going to be like the warehouse workers in China, alongside the white collar workers at Palantir, that really spark that effectiveness in a movement." Um, So I definitely think it's intentional.
1: (laughs) And I want to get to the political impact of blockchain in just a moment. But you write that according to a recent United Nations report, a third of human greenhouse gas emissions stem from industrial agricultural practices. These same industrial agricultural practices have rearranged the way rural communities live, fomenting political change around the world why do those in urban areas who might be imposing plans like blockchain, why do they not consider the political impact of their consumer demand on rural areas? What explains that lack of consideration to you?
2: So I like to assume the best intentions despite my deep cynicism. Um, And I think it's just you know, it's the law of social reproduction, right? It's much easier to function in the world with the beliefs and, um, you know, kind of ideologies that we've been surrounded by and raised by. And so I, you know, I, I also am at a PhD program in geography at Berkeley. Um, and, you know, I encounter and teach a lot of undergrads and some of them go through data science and computer science programs, and it's just not emphasized. Um, It's always like, here's this problem, your job as a technical person, or even as a business person, future business tech person, um, it's just solve these problems, and to start a company, and this is like the thing this must be the only singular path this is the only way of thinking here's all these theorems that explain human behavior and you can just kind of rationalize your way out of any issues you encounter Um, so of course uh you know if this is what is taught to us uh through capitalism it's going to be difficult to you know Really look beyond that ideology. Um, And so that's where I say, like, I'm going to assume the best of intentions. And that is a lot of the people I encounter, right? They're kind of just like, you know, I'm just trying to do my job the best I can and make the world a better place. And they genuinely believe that.
1: And I want to get to what those intentions may lead to in a bit as well You write that challenging my metronormativity meant challenging ideas of the digital world versus the physical world And pulling back the idea that becoming a Luddite and disengaging is the only way to reclaim a sense of belonging How are the digital world and physical world part of the same world? What happens to our understanding of our world in general when we separate it into the digital and physical realms?
2: Yeah. So I actually get this a lot from folks who are just like, well, we should just log off and Google's watching us. Alibaba is horrible. You know, just log off and become a Luddite. But that's not really where power is, right? I mean, so much, you know, especially because I write about food um, as well, like The emphasis, especially under neoliberalism, is this idea of the political subject that's going to, you know, make these individual choices. You've logged off, you've stopped eating meat, and now everything's fine. Um, That's not (laughs) how political power works, in my opinion, right? Um, It's about actually finding ways to connect, to build systems and infrastructures that tie together each of us like into this community and so when the line between the digital and physical is blurred I think that opens up a lot more possibility, Um, you know I still use the Internet, but I now try to you know Rethink my relationship to what I expect out of tech, um, actually try and uh, cultivate meaningful connections through my social networks that lead to some kind of um, communal form of uh, governance or power. Um, And I think that also social media is a really effective tool for organizing. And I think. Especially on the left, like we should totally use it more um, and find creative ways to do it. The right has been extremely effective, uh, sadly, very effective at using these digital tools. So, you know, I don't, I don't want. It people to come away with a sense that like the individual action is the way to go because that's how capitalist tech works capitalist tech is like you are the individual user with your iphone you're in your own world you're scrolling at breakfast and you're in this you know owned universe of your mind but that's not that's like kind of set up to be that way
1: You write how we remain caught in a long list of binaries. Tech is dehumanizing. Tech brings liberation. Tech dragged the world into the mess it's in. Tech frees it from this mess. Tech creates isolation. Tech connects marginalized communities. The difficult work that we face is to live and thrive beyond binaries and assumptions and to aid and enable others to do so. Does believing in and embracing those binaries, does believing in tech's potential for liberation and connecting the world allow, even rationalize, tech causing this mess, isolating and marginalizing us? Does belief in the binary lead to tolerating the worst aspects of tech because we believe that we must take the bad with the good?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the most powerful export of, so I'm just going to say Silicon Valley because I feel like that's the real kind of engine of uh, tech growth over The past 20 or 30 years, the biggest export of Silicon Valley has not been, you know, it's like technical achievement. There's um, been it's like that technical achievement is the result of many other forms of like networked hidden labor across borders. The biggest export of Silicon Valley is ideology. And it's been so incredibly effective at wielding ideology towards its ends. So I used to work for this amazing um, small company called Medan, which does a lot of uh, civic tech work, fact checking, um, and also work in Egypt. And so it was really interesting that you know, the Arab Spring happened and all of a sudden Twitter was like so happy (laughs) to claim like, you know, it's really Twitter that did it. it's like, no, it's not Twitter that did it. Twitter helped in it. Um, It helped amplify people's messages, but um, it was really the people on the ground who are working and organizing had been long committed to the movement. Um, So it's always like, you know, This kind of narrative that's spun on like, oh, well, you know, Twitter caused this, Twitter caused that. But actually, there's these larger structural forces at play that are very much grounded in material reality. The sweat of people organizing, um, the economic reality that we live in, the lack of social safety net. These are all kind of contributing factors to behaviors, um, whether digital or uh, IRL. Um, yeah.
1: You write that code is words made executable. We must take care in what we say. And for those of us who see code as an apocryphal text, who see technology as indeed accelerating us toward a despondent, tightly controlled world, I hope this book reaffirms the power that you hold in being human and demonstrates ways certain technologies might actually serve open systems. What do you mean by code being an apocryphal text? What do you... Why do you doubt its authenticity, its truthfulness? How is it apocryphal?
2: So uh, this came out of actually working in tech, and uh, you know, talking with a coworker who he and I both read a lot, and we're sitting there, and we're like having this very tired moment. we're like oh my god it's like we're writing a book but instead of the words just being read the words are read by a computer and then they do something out of the world um they like actually are these like instructions um for machines to do things um and there was something really interesting to me about that tension and at the same time like You know there's this kind of impermanence when you're working to code it's like you write it you kind of hope it stays you know it might just get ripped out or replaced some weeks later and there is you know increasingly now this sense of like oh well you know the internet would just be better if everyone just learned how to code i don't necessarily believe in that (laughs) Um, I think that that's also, like, there's no coincidence that big companies like Google are pushing that, right? But I do think that, you know, there is this intrigue that's built up around code, there's this fantasy, there's all these things. But at the end of the day, um, there there are the things that code does out in the world, and then there's the day-to-day realities of, like, building code. Um, And I'm interested in that kind of juncture, and then also the ideology that surrounds uh, code, right? Um, I think being human is something that I touch upon, um, actually, in the in a chapter about AI and hog farming. And I touch upon it, because embedded in this kind of AI narrative, Um, that's sold to us by large tech companies is what it means to be human and what it means to live a meaningful life. So I really do hope that that comes across in the book to readers.
1: We are speaking with artist, writer, and coder Xiaowei Wang, author of Blockchain, Chicken Farm, and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. You can find out more about Xiaowei at xrwang.github.io and follow Xiaowei on Twitter at XRW. You write, Bitcoin is one use of blockchain, but it remains separate from blockchain technology. Some have used a biological analogy to illustrate the difference if blockchain is DNA, Bitcoin is a distinct species. Blockchain is a special kind of distributed record-keeping system that uses cryptography to prevent records from being falsified, eliminating the need to trust a centralized authority to verify records. So is blockchain then the privatized, privately run replacement record-keeper for the state and the economy? Is blockchain in competition with the state?
2: So... It's fascinating because in China blockchain is not in competition with the state and I think that surprising tension actually points to what I worry is this underlying um, essentially imperialist logic of blockchain right. Um, So it didn't really actually click into place for me for a long time. I mean, I have friends who work in the blockchain crypto space, and I totally respect the hard work that they put in and what they do. Um, I also just joined a blockchain self-improvement club. (laughs) So I'm not anti-blockchain by any means. However... When I started going to um, more blockchain kind of meetups as well as conferences, there's always this underlying current to blockchain that it's like it exists because you know yes, politically, like we want to replace the world financial system, which I'm behind. A lot of people are like crypto anarchists, which I also support. But then there comes a point where it's like, well, this system that we've thought of to like replace the system that we have now, it is it assumes that humans are bad actors. And so a lot of people uh, cite Tragedy of the Commons, um, which is this idea by Garrett Hardin, an ecologist who was like, oh well, humans need some kind of strict governance structures. otherwise they will ruin common resources like herders, you know they'll over um, herd and like they'll really uh, ruin the land for because we're so selfish as individuals. Uh, that theory has been proven over and over to be incorrect, um, problematic. Uh, Garrett Hardin was a white supremacist and yet it's still often taught. I was just talking to someone the other day, it's like still taught in political theory classes. So I think it's fascinating that this idea still sticks with this new form of technical governance um that continues to assume that humans are innately selfish in some sense um and so back to your uh original question you know it adds another layer of opacity um the people that i talked to uh this blockchain chicken farmer he was just like what's blockchain like you know he's like this is just a thing that i'm using so that i can actually fetch a decent price for these chickens that I'm raising because people trust it because, you know, blockchain, um, this kind of fancy marketing uh, term, right? Um, And it is like another layer of opacity because it's seen as technical, computational, people think it's objective, but it's not. And in some ways, you know, I, I talk about how previously record keeping it's like, Uh, you know, line by line, there's actually a bit more transparency to it. And of course, you know, we rely on technical systems in our daily lives that are very complex all day. Um, Like the thing that flies airplanes, for example, the software that does that. But I think that especially in... um, Situations where social trust and human relations are negotiated, uh, relying on the opacity and bureaucracy of another technical system is not the most promising way forward, nor is it sustainable.
1: You write that in its origins, blockchain was structured with a set of assumptions about the social conditions under which it operates. And many of its advocates and engineers have pushed a political vision of the world that is somewhere between libertarianism and anarchy. But like a lot of technology these days, it has been adopted by companies and governments to make money, including a chicken farm in a small remote village of Guizhou. How do you see blockchain politics somewhere between libertarianism and anarchy? Where do you how how would you describe blockchain politics?
2: Yeah. So, it's like it's, I feel like in, you know, many many years ago, someone was describing the political spectrum and this is probably totally off base that i'm going to get some angry (laughs) angry fist shakes in the virtual sphere but you know people are like oh the you know it's kind of like the two ends sometimes form a circle in terms of how uh how like you know people view political action and power being situated blockchain is just like You know, you have the anarchists who are like this is decentralized and there's no more central banks um, and we still kind of will have this contract making fiscal scheme that will allow us to not have these centralized forms of governance and uh, institutions because the technical machinery will work so perfectly um, that aligns actually pretty well <laughs> with libertarians uh, who believe you know we shouldn't have these centralized uh, the Federal Reserve or things like that for example. Um, so it is like, a really fascinating set of uh, sociologically, a fascinating set of people who are into it. But at the core of you know what the what is seen as the solution is like, okay, we take away central power from the banks, but we still can't totally trust on each other, and we still want like kind of a global system rather than thinking like, oh, Maybe this is about reimagining uh, community in a different way. Maybe this is re- about reimagining scale in a different way. That's not like we're scaling across as many people as possible, but actually we're thinking about scale in terms of sustainability, in terms of like the next generations that we have to like build this world for. Um, so I think that was, I, I mean, I also, you know, I I enjoy being around anarchists and crypto anarchists, I don't mean to publicly diss them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh you go to this blockchain chicken farm, you see how blockchain can work for a farmer named Jiang and how it does not work. But but following that you uh go to a Uh, Conference, the Internet Archives Decentralized Web Summit in San Francisco The founder of the Lightning Network Is on stage, a protocol layer That's a Lightning Network, is a protocol layer that sits On top of Bitcoin's blockchain This guy's speaking into the microphone The Decentralized Web Summit is host To an eclectic assortment of people You write a caricature of the Bay Area's Tech scene, you then quote the speaker saying Life is nasty, brutish, and short Right? You describe how he pauses Then talks about Usenet, a distributed Message board system, he attributes The demise of Usenet to what He calls bad actors Essentially assholes He continues that That's always been the problem with society Society has always had the issue Of assholes running it for everybody Are assholes ruining it For everybody when it comes to blockchain And what does it say about code Or big tech When every time there seems to be uh, Something wrong with their tech It's because there's an asshole Ruining it for everybody
2: So I will say, this is definitely, I mean, we all have biases, so I'm just going to be real with mine. (laughs) Um, I actually, the people that I've met in blockchain, like, you know, so there's the VCs that come in and they're like, blockchain, you know, I'm going to invest money. But there's actually like a group of people who maybe because of the political reasons that they started to uh, come into blockchain, um, you know, they are their views are changing and evolving and I appreciate them because they almost have this punk rock attitude to things um I had a friend who worked at one of these blockchain companies and they got a ton of money from uh VCs and they actually just saw it as a form of wealth redistribution so they were just giving away money left and right to all these projects all these other things um and found a way to use the legal mechanism of investment and the idea that you know, like, was most start- three out of four startups will fail. Like leveraging that to, to their ends um, to redistribute wealth. Um, obviously, that takes a lot of courage to do. Um, that is also stopping the forces of social reproduction. That is you know, going to probably ruin your name with a lot of VCs in the future. But they did it. And so I think that there is possibility, um, despite the inevitability of big capitalist tech always coming in to ruin it for the rest of us.
1: So you write that uh The idea that life is nasty, brutish, and short comes from the political and moral philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, who argued that a strong authoritarian government is needed to curb the selfish instinct that lives in all of us. How does blockchain either impose or reflect authoritarianism?
2: It totally, I mean, it goes along with the idea of like everyone needs to code, right? It's I think authoritarianism really relies on this specific type of expert um, and these specific bureaucratic structures that view people as needing to be controlled or um, somehow, uh, you know, mediated. Um, You know, with blockchain, it's just like individual actions are baked into these technical contracts um the kind of underlying assumptions of blockchain really only go on to fuel that and so it does it is kind of it's not like authoritarianism in the strictest sense of like you know Hannah Arendt authoritarianism but it's authoritarianism I would say as maybe like a kind of technical authoritarianism Um, I've had a few friends actually also suggest it might be a kind of feudalism sadly like tech feudalism
1: i kind of like that idea too uh you write that blockchain leads with the idea that bad actors are intrinsic in a system and to prevent their actions enormous amounts of electricity must be spent on preventing them through hashing functions that's a process that is in blockchain is that use of electricity worth defending us from bad actors or is it all merely a marketing campaign to get up get people to buy bitcoin
2: So (laughs) this is, this is, uh, I'm like dreading getting, uh, I'm sure I will get also many angry fist shakes from perhaps socialist believers in um, blockchain, uh, especially, you know, as the use of electricity as a resource ties to like backing um, a currency, and I suppose one could make some weird Marxist argument for that. Um, what I find disconcerting is like, you know, the premise of blockchain as like, oh, humans are innately selfish and really stemming from this ecological idea of the tragedy of the commons. And then as a technology, it's literally <laughs> ruining the comments, it's like this awful, you know, so many people have written about it, how uh, the use of electricity in uh, Bitcoin mining, um, a lot of these kind of the computational requirements um, are really wreaking havoc, both on carbon footprints, electricity use and the environment. A lot of people um I know with Bitcoin mining used to be situated in Inner Mongolia because there's a lot of cheap energy, both coal and wind. And actually, I heard um, over the past few years, people are also moving to Iceland just because the hydroelectric power there is so cheap. And you know, if we know anything about like even these wonderful green sources of energy, it also really shifts and changes the ecology of local environments. So
1: you uh, point out that the story of blockchain in China seems like a game of pick your poison. Who do you trust more, the machine or the government? But how much is it one or the other? Who runs the machine? How much does blockchain lead to, especially in China, the government and the private sector being the same?
2: Yeah, it it you know especially you, the it's not like the government will come out outright and be like yes this is definitely you know the blockchain there's this is like our local government's blockchain project i think it's actually a similar landscape um in a lot of ways to the us where you have uh, the local government being like hey private company um can you build this blockchain solution um there's also other private um blockchain companies that are more, uh, interfaced and oriented to the rest of the world, um, rather than local issues. I think it, it does often feel like pick your poison to me. Like I always, you know, just, there's always this image in my mind of Have you seen that movie Brazil, the Terry Gilliam movie?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's fantastic. I love that. And in fact, you should look up uh, the book The Making of Brazil because mm. they went through this whole censorship process. Through the uh, director went through this whole censorship project because, uh, process because the studio did not want him to make the radical movie, the incredibly radical movie that he wanted to make. What you actually see on the screen is really watered down from his original concept. So look for that book, but go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting. It's just a movie I'm very excited about.
2: I know. I love that movie. And I love it because it's like, you know, when the fly goes through the machine and kind of is like, and he's like, this is you know, this is not me. You've got, you've got the wrong, per- like, you know, you guys are getting the wrong person. Um, that's what I think of when I think of blockchain: is both the this like authoritarian government, and then layered on top of it, this technical machinery that's baked into power. And so, whether it is, you know, the government directly saying, like, we have this blockchain system. Or what we're seeing increasingly is like a landscape of private companies and private contractors providing services to the government. There is still this kind of uh, veneration, this idealization of how seemingly neutral and totally fine uh, technical infrastructure is. And I worry because it's, it's it's not, good (laughs) well what's
1: more fallible than government control or control by algorithms
2: what's more fallible I I mean you've caught me at a bad time two weeks before the election
1: (laughs) it's also a pick your poison question again you know
2: so I'm going to say that I'm going to say both right both (laughs) Both are deeply flawed systems, and I think that as someone who doesn't work in government or private industry right now, that at least from the outward, um, looking at those systems, there's rooms to make both fall um, in good ways.
1: How does investing in blockchain further solidify the political system that we're in? Because you write that in recent years, the blockchain community uh, community has become increasingly well-funded by venture capital with millions of dollars further doled out to blockchain projects that only further solidify the political system we live in. How does it do that?
2: So, sorry, I'm going to get really cynical again. (laughs) Um, I think, especially under this whatever you want to call it, late stage capitalism, um, a lot of things, including ourselves, um, have become vehicles for capital to flow through. Um, as you know, I was thinking about this the other day in terms of student loans and how a lot of my students are like, "I can't defer school. You know, I got these student loans. I got to keep going to school." The, they get the money gets sent to the school directly, um, and it's almost like you know we've become just these vessels where uh, the loan company pays the school. The school is essentially a real estate business at this point. Um, and when I think of investing, especially VC investing, the cynical part of me sees it as this way. It's just like. Now we have all this excess capital, we have money that we need to invest. Um, Let's just keep on reiterating it's not like these kind of companies these blockchain companies that had the original dream of like a decentralized future no more central banks they're still becoming ensnared into that system of financialization and investment and uh these global vc firms right so it just only goes on to reiterate actually the central bank that a lot of these companies originally politically wanted to destroy um it's kind of a bummer but yeah, sorry to have yeah. <laughs> <was> that cynical act.
1: <laughs> well, then people aren't going to be happy about your answer to the next question. We have one last question for you, Xiaowei. We've been speaking with Xiaowei Wang, artist, writer, coder, author of Blockchain, Chicken Farm, and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. Find out more about Xiaowei at XR Wang xrwang.github.io. Follow Shawway on Twitter at X-R-W Our final question for each and every one of our guests Is what we call The question from hell The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer Or our audience is going to hate your response So this is a place where your cynicism can really shine, <laughs> Shawei. So uh, how are blockchain and bitcoin How do they make us More selfish, more destructive. Because you write uh, that popular support for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is oscillated between feverish excitement and wariness about its electricity consumption. It requires more electricity annually than Switzerland. By creating a system based on the assumption that humans are destructive and selfish... You only end up making those assumptions reality, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It serves as a reminder of the physical material relationships that bind our world. So how can blockchain, how can Bitcoin make us more selfish and destructive? And should that even matter if I'm getting rich from Bitcoin? Why should I even worry about the re- the source of that wealth?
2: I think it haunts people, <laughs> um, I was talking with someone the other day about this, I think it was like this Forbes interview with a billionaire. Maybe it was like a tech billionaire. And they're like, of course, I want the world to be a better place. Like it sucks to live in a world where there's enormous income equality. And I know that I've not only profited from it, but also like people literally are unhappy. And then there was a tone of resignation of like, oh, but this is this is just the world that I live in. So, of course, I'm going to continue to get rich. Um, I think living with resignation, living under such an individualistic view of the world where you have no community, where you have no sense of care for the people around you. That is a horrible way to live. And maybe that's why especially in Silicon Valley, especially in the Bay Area, a lot of our friends are like, you know, they're like, oh, I just like did this like meditation retreat for these CEOs. I just did this like self-care thing for these CEOs. Maybe that's why these CEOs need so much of it. So I I maybe, you know, that's like the positive <laughs> edge of it. I don't know.
1: Shao this has been a fantastic conversation. First of all, I just want the, the, the sheer joy in your voice about talking about this topic i really enjoyed it and i'm going to be bugging you because i got to know how a blockchain self improvement club works so i'm going to be emailing you about that because i am so curious about that we have been speaking with <laughs> artist writer and coder shao wei wang author of Blockchain Chicken Farm and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. I've, I've got 30 questions to talk to you about, about food safety that we didn't even get to. So make sure you go out and check out Xiaowei Wang's book, Blockchain Chicken Farm and Other Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Like I said, this has been a complete joy.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Chuck.
1: All right. Take care. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, tell us what's this week's question from Hell and how our listeners are responding.
0: This week's question from Hell is: What else will fall with the autumn leaves? What will fall with the autumn leaves? Adam A says, I don't know, but hey, I know you've been looking for a soundboard person and I thought, nah, not my thing. But if you ever need someone to hide in the studio and regularly attack Chuck like Kato in the Pink Panther movies, wait, cable news profits. My answer is cable news profits. <laughs> Mason W says, statues of white supremacists tumble on down whitey. John H says, "There is some pretty grim stuff here, so I'll add the stock market. Watch out. I don't think the stock market falling and it's going to impact too many people's pocketbooks. Working on this as hell. <laughs> uh, Bradley R says the tendency of the rate of profit. Uh, another different Bradley R. Damn says Jeffrey Tubin's pants. Apparently. <laughs> oh man. Joe B says if this wind keeps up, all the branches where they came from. all The branches they came from. <laughs> uh, Gorilla G says surely the proverbial fat lady's pitch as she strains to hold that last high note until all the ballots are counted. But I won't complain. Simon S. says, the tiles that I replaced in my disgusting shower during a lockdown DIY frenzy. (laughs) And finally, Aaron B. says, Tesla's stock after the Bolivian election.
1: That reminds me I have to work on the uh, caulk in my tub this weekend. I'm pretty excited about that. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to... You for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us, but you have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show. Because after Jeff Dorchin in The Moment of Truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. This week, Jeff shows up with the conclusion of his spiel on class consciousness, which he began last week. You can find that at thisishell.com If you missed the first part of his two parter, Alex, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at ThisIsHell.com.
0: We're going to have Danielle Purifoy on to talk about her Scalawag magazine article, Knock on Wood, How Europe's Wood Pellet Appetite Fuels Environmental Racism in the South.
1: Again, this is part one. Have we found out how many parts there's going to be? No, part two has not been out yet. Oh, but there's going to be a part two, and that's it, probably.
0: Uh, I don't know. We'll uh. see how long we, we'll see how long Europe's wood pellet appetite is fueling <laughs> environmental racism in the South. Uh, also, Jeff, so infinitely, Jeff wrote to say the book is called "The Battle for Brazil."
1: Is it? The, oh, I didn't know that's what, what it was called. Oh thing. yeah, yeah, the Battle for Brazil. That is right. That's correct. Yeah, it's a really great book, and it's got some fantastic. Uh, art, concept art uh, for the movie. It's really, really great. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at ThisIsHell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Xiaowei Wong. Thanks to Alex Jerry. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude. But keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is Hell.